Well, we've been in a series looking at questions that you have been asking. And so this morning we decided to end the series or wrap it up with something a little different. We saved the hardest questions till last and thought we would give them the least amount of time. That seemed like the fair thing to do. <laughs> and realizing that I wasn't up to it, I called in some experts. And so we brought in our former senior pastor, Larry Dyer, the eminent Dr. Larry Dyer. And you can applaud. That's good. And then we brought in the real brains of the outfit here in the day-to-day things, Aaron McMillan, our associate pastor, to serve as moderator in case this turns into a debate. We called in Harley Marshall because he's just such a congenial guy. And uh, <laughs> and then I, do, I just am here to just be window dressing, so um, <laughs> no applause needed. So, all right. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to our moderator, Harley Marshall, who will uh, tell us what to do. All right. So my real purpose here is to try to keep three pastors within 30 minutes. Now, you know, pray for me is, is all I can do. So, uh, we, have, we have three general questions that we're going to kind of throw out to them, uh, and then we will follow those up as time allows. So uh, the first one uh, I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Aaron to kind of address. Uh, and the question is, how do we respond biblically and lovingly to the LGBTQ issues that are prevalent in our culture today? Sure. So one of the things that you'll see is at the beginning, we're just going to give you a brief biblical foundation to, as a lens to see the application, right? And so when I think of uh, sexuality, gender, identity issues, uh, there's several biblical things that we have to address. And, and the biblical concepts put us at odds with our culture. Um, the first concepts come from Genesis 1. Uh, Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. And then it goes on to say in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so out of these two verses, we've got two core concepts. Uh, the first is that our core identity is a reflection of God himself. And that's important to frame the conversation uh, because ultimately when people try to redefine themselves or their sexuality, what they're doing is not only rejecting God designed for them, but they're ultimately rejecting God himself. And then number two out of this verse, we see these verses, we see that men and women were created specifically with God ordained purposes. And so there's plenty of debates within the church and outside the church about men and women and their roles, but what can't be denied is that God created two sexes that would be complementary to one another. So when we start to try to redefine the role of sexes or the distinction between sexes, um, we begin to question God's ultimate purpose in his creative order. And then we go to Genesis 2.24, which says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And there we find our third biblical concept. And it's simply that God instituted marriage to be between a male and a female for life. And it doesn't matter where you read in, in, in the Bible, there's no other form of marriage that's supported throughout the biblical text. There's just not. 
And so many of our culture uh, look and raise objection to using this Old Testament text of Genesis to frame the argument of gender identity and even marriage. But it's helpful to remember that it's Jesus himself who, redefi- who, who takes these same texts of Genesis in the argument with the Pharisees over um, this idea of um, easy divorce in the New Testament. So it's not just Old Testament principles, it's God's creative principles that Jesus himself reinforces in the New Testament. And then lastly, what I would say, especially because homosexuality was specifically questioned, is that human sexuality outside the institution of marriage is sin, period. Um, So that includes everything in the Old Testament and New Testament, uh, the broad terms of fornication, immorality. um, That includes sins of premarital sex, adultery, and homosexuality, and everything in between. Um, And again, it's not just Old Testament. It's Old Testament and New Testament text. You can go to Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, um, for more examples of specific listings of sins as it pertains to human sexuality. And so that's about as brief as we can give a biblical foundation uh, for um, this. But if we're going to uphold the authority of Scripture, we accept these principles that are loving and wise God has given us. So we, we affirm the inherent value of every human being as image bearers. We recognize his creative order defines gender and sexuality. And then we defend a sexual ethic that upholds marriage. And we don't compromise where the Bible clearly reveals and defines sin. And that often puts us in this countercultural position. Good. Thank you. So on that foundation, and let's, let's move to a couple application questions. There certainly is a lot of emphasis on uh, homosexuality and transgenderism, both within the culture and a focus of it within the church. So my question is, are homosexuality and transgenderism worse sins than others? Anybody can take that one. <laughs> I mean, I've got answers. I've already talked about it. <laughs> I say yes and no. Both. Both are the case. There, there's a, a sense in which homosexuality is the final straw in any society. Any place where you reach that point of no return, almost, where God's judgment then falls upon that culture and that society. You see that in Sodom and Gomorrah. You see that from the book of Jude as the comment on the, the strange flesh, the whole approach. Romans chapter 1. On the other hand, it, it is not a worse sin in the sense that all sins are equal. They produce death. The soul that sins, it shall die. So there is a distinction, but there is also um, an equality. Any sin is enough to send a person to eternal fire if they are not forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, I would concur. There, there's. Yes and no. Well, the only thing I would add to that is we just should keep in mind that I think recognizing that there's a yes and no answer also leads itself to say, but let's not make sure we're not just harping on one issue of sinfulness when we address sin. And so we want to we make sure that our, as we address people, we're not just focusing on one issue, mm-hmm. but we're focusing on the realm and the, just the human fallenness in general. Um, but knowing that because this is a core issue, because it goes back to God's creative order and things of that nature, it is a serious sin that shouldn't be taken lightly. But you will find that sin lumped in with right. with uh, disobedience to parents and lying and uh, things that we consider you know just kind of just not a big deal. But all sin is a big deal. Right. And uh, I would also add to that that 
we shouldn't be surprised to see this coming up in our culture. You know, it is, we expect pagans to live like pagans. <laughs> and we have a, we have a culture that has rejected God. And there's a very real sense in these things are kind of the, I, I like the way Larry was saying it, it's, it's in Romans and in Jude and, and as well in Sodom and Gomorrah, it's kind of the end of the chain. It is the last ultimate rebellion of man against God. It is the ultimate expression of rebellion to say that I am not who you made me to be. And that's really what, consciously or subconsciously, that's what uh, this culture and what people do when they move into transgenderism and all and uh, all of the stuff related to homosexuality and everything else. It's, it's an ultimate rebellion. Is there a distinction between... The, the, the part of our culture that celebrates these things versus the individuals that struggle with them. And, and how do we as a church discern between those two? I think the church and individuals have to maintain a distinction between the person and the agenda, as you well pointed out. Uh, we witness to and have a responsibility to communicate the gospel to every person. That includes the homosexual individual, the transsexual individual. They are a person who needs to know Jesus Christ, and that must be utmost in our thinking. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the agenda itself is a, a massive threat to the entire culture, uh, to the family as structure, and when it's impressed upon the church by law, by government, it becomes extremely oppressive and it becomes a great threat to the proclamation of the gospel because it undermines the ability to even point out sin. You're not allowed in Canada, for example, to say that's wrong. Well, when you do that, you have attacked the gospel because that's part of it. Without that, you, you cannot... You cannot get to first base, which is man is sinful and this is sin. We have to repent of our sins. We can't accept someone who's not willing to do that. So by redefining it, it simply moves it out of the stage and, and out of the gospel's reach. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize, too, that people are not projects for us to change. <laughs> uh, God does transforming. And, mm -hmm. and we pray for people that God would grip their hearts and God would do the change and the gospel pierces sin. It's not us mm -hmm. to try to change somebody. We can't. Pastor Keith spoke to that about our marriages. We can't change mm -hmm. anybody, but we can be a gospel witness to them. And then we'll talk, not yet, but in a minute, about politics and some yeah. of that when it gets into the agenda of the state and things like that. But people are like people that. at their core, mm -hmm. and that's where it goes back to they're image bearers of God, and we need to remember that and then rely on the Spirit's work to do transforming. It's not us yeah. preaching. I like that. Uh, that's um, you know the scripture calls for us to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us. But I, I dare say that in all of my years of ministry, I have rarely seen anyone one to Christ by reason. Uh, we do not reason people to faith. God has to enlighten a blind eyes. He has to quicken a dead heart. And that's a supernatural work of the Spirit of God on the heart of someone. And so what we need to do is we need to, we need to pray for them. We need to love them. It is the love of Christ, I believe, that breaks through uh, 
more than any arguments and reasons we can give. And that's why to the person who is caught in any sin, whether it's it's uh, whether they're caught in drugs, whether they're caught in in lying, cheating, stealing, pride, uh, homosexuality, name the sin. We simply have to be witnesses and let Christ do a redeeming work in their in their life. And we've got to love people caught in sin, any sin, because as as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, "Such were some of you. Mm-hmm. Every one of us have been somewhere." They're lost and caught hopelessly in sin. So the other thing that we would flesh out then is the next question, which is how would you respond to an invitation to a same-sex wedding? That cuts right to the core, doesn't it? (laughs) I'll leave this one to them. No. (laughs) And this is where Keith comes in. (laughs) That's a tough question. It is. I bet... I bet some of you have struggled with that or something close to it. Anyone? Yeah. This is where it gets real. How do you deal with your cousin, you know, who invites you to this wedding and uh, what do you do with that? We actually talked about that a little bit this week and found that it was a very difficult conversation. Well, it's going to vary depending on the situation. This is why this is why you have to exercise both biblical principle and and then like eating meat offered to idols, you have to examine the other issues that are that come to bear. It's not an issue, as we've already said, it's not an issue of compromising on what is sin and what is not sin. It's how do I deal with the real people in my life who are lost and what am, what's going to happen if I go or don't go? Uh, what are the concerns? Well, the concern, first of all, is here's a relationship of someone that I care about that I want to see come to Christ. What happens to the relationship if I go or don't go? I'm, all, I'm trying to stand for what is right, and can I do that and go, or must I not go in order to stand for righteousness? And how do you, you know, those are tough, tough issues. Yeah. And I think one thing we realized is, we can't write a correct answer for everyone right here today. You really have to deal with that individually, as you said. What are some of the factors, I I guess I'd ask the question, what are some of the factors that might influence whether whether you would go or not? The first one is simple to me. Are they Christians and are they... Do they claim to be Christians and are they trying to celebrate this marriage as a Christian union? Mm. And for me, if that answer is yes, then I'm probably not going. I'm, mo- I'm most not going because my presence there is then affirming they're Christians who are celebrating a union that I don't believe Scripture can ordain, or ordains or can recognize. And so because of that, I wouldn't go. That's the easiest answer for me when it comes to are you a Christian? Do you claim to be Christians? Are you trying to make this a God-honoring thing? Because I don't think it can be. But if we're talking about non-Christians, then it gets a little more complicated. And then I think there's still another series of it depends. Um, and it mostly depends on your relationship with people. I realize as we mm-hmm. talked about some of these things that mm-hmm. I wouldn't get invited to many homosexual weddings. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh, but it's the reality of um, people know where I stand on the issue. And either out of respect for me or out of the circles I'm in, I just wouldn't get the invitation. Now, you're not a pastor, and so you may 
have more, but I do have someone who um, is currently in transition in my family, and so maybe I would get invited to their wedding um, if they choose to get married, and in transition from a woman to a male. And so I may get invited to their wedding. Um, would I go? Probably. They're my family. I don't make that. I, it's a, they know who I am. They know where I stand. They're my family. If they're inviting me, I'm going to support them. They're not Christians. They don't claim to be. They're not trying to have a Jesus-centered ceremony. Um, and so I think I could go as um, a family member who is there to show support for my family, not necessarily agreeing with their uh, position. But also, the other reason that I think I would go would be because if I don't, it sends the message that I don't want to send of, oh, there's a Christian who doesn't care. And so, it, it, again, there's a lot of things that go with that side of my family. It's not very Christian anywhere. Uh, there's no gospel witness. And if I can be a gospel witness, and then, and then I think I would. And I say I think because I've not been put in that situation. <laughs> but these are some of the things that I would have to consider. You know, are they Christian? Are they family? Now, if it's a co-worker at work, mm. I may have a different, you know, answer. Not this workplace. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Your workplace, maybe. <laughs> I was thinking of uh, 1 Corinthians 5 when you mentioned this distinction between believers and unbelievers. And, and you're correct because it says, uh, Paul says, I did not mean that you cannot associate with immoral people of this world. See, he distinguishes between Christians and non. Or with the covetous, swindlers, idolaters, you see. He just starts listing. For then you would have to go out of the world. You can't disassociate yourself from people who are not Christians who do these things. We expect sinners to sin. But I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother who is an immoral person, which that would qualify for, who is covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such one, and that would include going to their wedding. Because then you're compromising your testimony at that point. You may feel you're compromising your testimony by going to a relative. And you may come up with a different conclusion than Aaron does. But it would be wrong for you to say, hey, Aaron sinned when he went to that wedding. Or to say, I'm more spiritual because I didn't go. That would be the judgmentalism of someone who's passing judgment on another person's Freedoms of making a decision based upon his love for God and his desire to reach others. See, we can't really judge each other on that matter. I'd, I'd love to continue to unpack this because I know there's a lot to say, but we have two more questions and we're, we're, we're rapidly... So, yeah, that's, that's a lot of these, the, the bottom line is, we're never going to get that nice, clean answer and, yes, that's it, and, and uh, we have it all wrapped up. So we're going to have to move on. Um, Keith, I'm going to direct this next question to you. Uh, for our for our kind of foundational statement, as dual citizens, what is the role of the believer regarding politics? Boy, if that other one is the big issue in the in the with our relationship with the world today, I think this is one that it brings a lot of heat inside the church today. The, rela- the relationship of, of believers to politics. Um, I'd say. What I want to look at is what does Scripture say plainly? There's a whole lot of stuff we don't know. What do we know for sure? Well, the Bible does tell us 
First Timothy chapter two, verses one and two tells us we need to be praying, prayerful, and by the way, it adds thankful, prayerful and thankful for kings and all who are in authority. Uh, that ought to be a priority with us to be praying for our leaders. So that's one of our roles in politics. Uh, Jesus, in answering the Pharisees, told, said that uh, we're to pay our taxes. We're supposed to give the government what is due them. Romans as well, Romans 13 affirms that. Romans 13, uh, Titus 2, 1 Peter 2, or Titus 3, 1 Peter 2, uh, those all talk about, say almost the same thing. I'm just going to quickly tick off some things. I'm not going to read all the verses. I'd like to. But from 1 Peter 2, let me just tick off a few things that are there about how you and I should deal with government. Uh, first thing, uh, it says that um, we are people belonging to God. Verse 9 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter says, We are people belonging to God so we, that we may declare the praises of Him who brought us out of darkness and into His wonderful light. The first responsibility we have to society slash government is we have a responsibility of the gospel. It's the message. We've been talking about that uh, for the last six months. Uh, the mission of the church is the gospel. We have to keep that as the priority. Um, secondly, he goes on in Peter and he goes on, verse 11, I urge you then as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. It's actually in your question. We have a dual citizenship. Our home really isn't here. Our home is in heaven. Our real identity is Christian, not American or not any other nationality. Our identity is, I am a citizen of heaven. And our hope, therefore, is not in, in any nation. It's not in America. It's not in saving America or, or some other country. It, our hope is in Jesus. Philippians one twenty says that uh, our citizenship is in heaven and we await a Savior from there. There's our hope. That's... That's the only time there's going to be a perfect kingdom on earth is when Jesus Christ comes back. Uh, Paul or Peter goes on. He says, live such good lives, verse 12, among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. You and I are to be known for our good deeds. Christians should be known for the good deeds to such an extent that we will have enemies who slander us. But our compassion, our love, our good works are so abundant that they cannot be missed. And on the day when they stand before God at judgment, they will have to give testimony to Him and give praise to God that He put faithful witnesses there. Our love demonstrated God's love. Our righteousness demonstrated His righteousness. Our concerns demonstrated His concerns. And... and um, so that means that we cannot be disconnected from social issues. We cannot be uninvolved. Uh, we must be in, engaged in our society. Uh, we're to be known for our good deeds. Fourthly, he goes on, he says, submit yourselves to the, for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, uh, whether to the king as the supreme authority or governors, etc. They're, they're sent to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. We're to submit to government. Uh, whether we are in a democracy or a dictatorship, whether the person who's in the office is Republican or Democrat, whether we are in America or in Kenya or in Malaysia or uh, you know North Korea, we are to submit to the authorities and to honor them, he says. 
verse 15, For it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the talk of ignorant men. We're to be people of integrity. Of such integrity that our enemies can't find anything real to say bad about us. Like in the case of Daniel. Read his story. That's what he means there. And then lastly, live as free men. I read this verse earlier. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants for God. Live free. Understand that what he's saying is because we belong to God, we're His and we shouldn't be intimidated. We can't be bullied. We can't be uh, afraid of any human authority. But, he continues, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Don't use that as an excuse to be rebels. Don't be, instead, he goes on, serve God, be respectful of everyone, authorities, people who we disagree with, evil people. We're still supposed to be respectful of everyone. Love our brothers, fear God, serve the King. A lot of stuff there. But I didn't answer your question, really. <laughs> but this is, you see, what the Bible says directly to us is this, three times, Romans, uh, Titus, and Peter, this is what it says is our duty to society and government. But how does that flesh out about political stuff? Just, I'd say just a few things. No Scripture forbids us from being engaged in politics. Uh, matter of fact, Joseph was second in command to Pharaoh. Daniel was second in command to Nebuchadnezzar and later to Cyrus and Darius uh, in Babylon and the leader under the Medes and Persians. And uh, you have even a Roman official, a proconsul in Acts chapter 13, Sergius Polis, Paulus, who became a believer and apparently kept his position in government. Uh, those were all wicked governments. And yet, believers were engaged in them. We're to speak truth. Scripture does have examples of people who speak truth boldly, even to governments. I think there's a place for that. And then thirdly, don't let political action eclipse our mission. If our mission is the gospel, that's number one. Everything else is under that. And because of that, we have to be careful how we engage the culture. So that, you know, if, if we pr promote a political agenda, it's, it's such a fine line and so quickly that turns from, from a political agenda where we, we make our mission field our enemy. See, the abortionist is not our enemy. He's the mission field. The homosexual and the transgender is not our enemy. They're the mission field. And when we make them the enemy, we have destroyed the mission and we've missed priority number one. And so we have to be careful how we do that. So, so in this polarizing atmosphere that we're in, how do we balance <laughs> attempting to create positive change through political avenues with that that primary mandate of, of proclaiming the gospel? Well, I think that dual citizenship is, is real. Uh, Paul was a, a citizen of Rome as well as a citizen of heaven. He writes, our citizenship is in heaven. But he always used his Roman citizenship for the benefit of defending the gospel. Say in Philippians 1.7, he says, I'm set for the defense of the gospel. So he is trying to stand before Caesar and argue for both presenting the gospel as well as the legitimacy of those who follow it. He did that in Philippi as well. When he was beaten unjustly, he then alerted them to the fact that they had beaten a Roman citizen unjustly. And boy, did they come running with their tails between their legs and say, oh, apology, apology. And what that did 
is set the church up for defense and protection of underneath that shelter a little bit and gave them some legal standing. It's always fine and should be the case for the people of the church and the members, uh, you know, Christians to defend themselves in, in the legal and cultural way in which we live. It's part of the apologetic. And it's, it's part of the good deeds that we're doing for our grandchildren and children that follow us. When I, when I consider the, what I would perceive as the problem with church and politics in our culture right now, uh, bullet down a couple of things, but the first thing that comes to mind is rhetoric. Um, if you're known for your political rhetoric more than you're known for your Jesus rhetoric, that may be a problem. Um, how, do we balance, how do we balance the issues uh, between pro- gospel proclamation and political action? I would say... Um, Put your money where your mouth is in terms of um, don't say that you care about the prosperity of the nation through politics if you're not willing to get your hands hands dirty and serve people. Um, We need to recognize that um, our mission as the church, as Keith is repeatedly telling us, is about serving people, is about showing them and revealing them Jesus. Um, That's where our mandate is to love our neighbor, to serve the underserved, to look out for the poor, the needy, the widow. Um, And there's two ways to do that. Um, You can do that through government, through politics in our nation. So get involved to make laws, to create programs, to um, help human flourishing on a macro scale. Mm. Be involved with that process, but do not be involved with that process and then neglect the people in front of you. So make sure that if you're advocating for those kind of things, when you see the homeless, when you see the poor, when you have a widow, then serve them, then love them well, so that when someone sees you, they are not identifying you as a political person per se. They're seeing this is a Jesus follower who does both influence government, but also cares for people. And I think one of the problems we have is a perception problem. The church doesn't really care about people. They just care about their agenda as much as we talk about the agenda of progressives or whatever you want to say. And so, that, you know, those are a couple of things that come to my mind in terms of balancing politics. And I agree with you completely. It's both personal as well as programmatic in a sense or macro and micro. Um, I, I think, though, that we have to realize in this culture, the church is going to be hated, like you said, slandered. Mm-hmm. We're going to receive, I don't know that we can ever do enough good deeds to build the kind of uh, good feelings and, and that you would like to have out there, because that really doesn't matter if what God approves of matters. The church has a right and a, an importance to take to take a stand as individuals, I think, on, on issues that really matter, um, like life, pro-life, for example. I know we are. The church has been that way from practically day one and remains that way. But, uh, you know, to defend that life, innocent life, is a critical factor in the whole of our culture. We need to be seen as people who really believe that. And then put that into practice, like you say, with uh, helping those that are unfortunately finding themselves uh, pregnant without hope and without help. And we provide that help and resources to do so. Yeah, I think the answer lies in, you know, why should Christians get involved? 
is that politics have you know consequences, yeah. and that's where it matters whether or not we're we're helping and being a part of a country uh, where people live in freedom, <laughs> or whether uh, people live in servitude, or we're living in a in a place in a country in an environment that supports life or does not, and and mm. those impact people in a very real way. So don't neglect politics, but don't again make politics the main issue. Good, good thoughts. Let's go to our third question. Larry, I'll direct it to you. Uh, can you just kind of summarize for us, what does the Bible tell us about heaven? Well, it tells us that heaven is the home of the redeemed of all the ages, ultimately. And that there is a difference between the heaven, in a sense, that you go to when you die as, an un, as a disembodied spirit, and your body remains here, and the heaven you will experience, the ultimate new heavens and new earth you'll experience, when when resurrection occurs and when we will uh, experience the perfect world that God's going to create. Um, heaven is, is not like the myths often to talk about. You know, you don't become uh, an angel who pops out wings. You certainly you know, don't get those wings every time a, a bell rings. <laughs> There's an awful lot of myth about this. But heaven is, I think, a real place. It's uh, clearly defined and described for us there in Revelation 21 and 22. And I think that its dimensions are actually given to us for a reason. Its materials are described for a reason. And everything in that text makes sense. It doesn't have to be interpreted in some sort of spiritual way that simply wipes out all reality. God is a God of creation. He's a God of redemption. He's a God who's going to create a new heavens and new earth that's just as real as this one and is going to be exciting for all eternity. So heaven is something that ought to motivate us terrifically to be holy. I was just talking to a, you know, our Sunday school class about this as we wrapped up our class, and, and the wrap-up point is simply that if heaven is our goal, then everything we do here ought to be looked at in light of, will this pass muster for heaven? Will every attitude I have, is that what's going to be acceptable there? How about every act I do, everything I approve, can I take this to heaven with me? And of course, that would eliminate an awful lot of things that people put up with and experience very quickly, wouldn't it? But we're going there, right? We need to get ready now. And that's a profound any other direct application to the here and now for something that's going to obviously be for eternity? Uh, any other way that it affects our daily life? Well, I think it all, again, I, I, I agree that it ought to motivate us. And I think one of the big problems we have for heaven is we just don't really think it's going to be that good. Hmm. I think the problem is, especially in this country, we have so much that we kind of think heaven might just might be, we're afraid heaven just might be a letdown. <laughs> You know, I mean, they're not going to have motorcycles there. They're not going to have, you know, whatever it is that our little thing is. Where they, oh, that's not... And so we're, we think we've got to squeeze stuff in. Jesus' word on that, Matthew 19, was he said, no one, or actually he puts it positive, everyone who leaves behind mm. houses or lands or brother or sister or whatever, he says, I will repay a hundred times over. And not in some wispy ethereal, as you say, it's a real place and it's real pleasures and it's, it's going to blow our minds. I think that's the problem is we just can't imagine how good it's going to be. The other question that so often comes up is, uh, what are we to make of all these 
stories that come back from people who uh, claim to have died and gone to heaven, and they come back and happen to write a best-selling book about it. Uh, what, what do we do with all of that? Don't buy the books. <laughs> <Don't> buy this. <laughs> well, I think that uh, it's interesting that these folks who have so-called died and been resuscitated uh, have been beyond and back. Uh, don't compare at all to what the Apostle Paul experienced as he wrote about it in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 12, 1-4, where he said he was caught up physically, or he didn't know whether it was bodily or out of the body, in the body, out of the body, into the third heaven, which was paradise. And what's most interesting is the Apostle Paul, of all people, is sees things and is told things which are inexpressible, and he is specifically told not to say. And you would expect that in these modern days there would be immediate leaks to the press all about that. And certainly a book or two could have been written extra on the side to buffer his... But no, he remains quiet. He does not tell us. How then can someone less than the Apostle Paul, by quite a bit, come along and then wants to tell us everything they've experienced and pocket the money to boot? A bit suspicious. John 17 says... And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. My biggest thing with a lot of these, this literature is we want to know all this stuff about heaven. But if the main focus of heaven is God, which it is, then the best thing we can do here to know about heaven is to get to know God. And the Bible is clear, to know God is to know Jesus. That's mm-hmm. eternal life. And how do we know Jesus? We read his word. And this is something that isn't written uh, by humans, but this is something that is God-inspired. And so I would just encourage all the people that are into Christian literature to not forget the Bible. That's supposed to be the basis for all of these things. So get into the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And, and I am for Christian literature. I am not for literature that goes is contrary to Scripture, which is, mm-hmm. I think, the realm that we find these kind of books. And if there's anything positive that comes out of these movies as well as books, it's that maybe we can foster discussions with people who do not have a biblical grounding, who do not have a biblical foundation. They're obviously interested in the topic of heaven, what mm-hmm. happens when, when we die. And we have answers from Scripture, from God, not from man. So mm-hmm. use these things as an opportunity to engage. Oh, I see that book. What do you think about it? Have you ever considered what the Bible says about heaven? Do you know you can know that you're going there? What did you think about that movie? These are the things that I think are better discussions than just reading mm-hmm. whatever. There's always going to be literature out there. Mm-hmm. But we can take these things as a gospel witness, an opportunity for a gospel witness. Amen. 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 I see we're yes, out of time. Can I cut so you off? Back to you, Good. I, I was worried you were going to ask me a hard question, so I thought I'd end it right there. Well, I hope that uh, you've been encouraged by this in uh, several things. Uh, these are difficult questions. And uh, uh, Pastor Aaron said earlier at the end of the first service, I thought it was great. The reality is uh, we like to talk about these things, uh, all of us as pastors. And mm-hmm. so... Some of you may be sitting out there and think, you know, I've, I've had these questions. You've been afraid to bring them up. Well, feel free to give Aaron a call or Pastor Larry. If they're hard questions, if, if they're easy questions, bring them to me. And then uh, we'd, love to, we'd love to talk about these things uh, more in depth. Um, but I hope that you've been encouraged to um, folks that we, we do need to uh, engage our culture in a, in a proper mm-hmm. way. 
especially with the mission that we have to be witnesses of Jesus Christ because we have a hope in heaven. And it's coming for sure, and we don't know how, how long it's going to be till then. And what the Scripture says, as long as it is day, as long as we have time, let's be busy, let's be faithful. Let's pray. Father, um, may we work while it's day. Because night is coming when no one can work. There's a time coming when uh, Jesus returns. There's no more opportunity to share the good news with lost people. Mm -hmm. And so may we be faithful. Lord, give us wisdom and grace as we deal with some of these difficult things, as we have to sometimes make decisions about do we go to this, do we attend that, um, uh, as we're dealing with our unbelieving friends and family. Uh, and we, we need to know how to respond to be both faithful to the truth at the same time compassionate and gracious where we have opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. So Lord, give us that wisdom. Help us as brothers and sisters to stand together, to encourage one another, to pray for one another. Hmm. And uh, as the writer of Hebrews says, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and all the more as we see the day approaching. Lord, may that be, um, may that be what you do in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.